0: So we are in week two of a sermon series called That'll Leave a Mark. Uh, The reason we're calling it this is because it's a sermon series exploring what it means to be people of good character, what it takes to be people who intentionally form our character. And the Greek word character originally meant to leave a mark or make an engraving. The noun form could be a tool for engraving. And so we're just presenting kind of this word image, That our character is, and here's kind of a new definition both the marks left on our life by our relationships and experiences, as well as the marks we leave on the lives of others. We know that every one of us, based on our character, is gonna leave a mark on the lives of the people around us. The question is, what kind of mark are we going to leave? And we know that our lives have had many different marks left on us. The question is, are we going to be intentional about how we respond, not just passively receiving whatever the world throws our way, but intentionally forming our character through the life we're living I started last week, and I'm, I've still got this book really on the fresh of my mind, so I'm going to start again with a story from the book called Being Mortal by the American surgeon, public health researcher, author uh, out of Boston. His name's Atul Gawande, and he's a surgeon, and he sort of critiques himself as a surgeon many times throughout the book, and he tells this one story um, about a time he visited a colleague of his on a different floor, it was the gerontology floor, the floor where people kind of dealing with the many different challenges at the end of life go to meet with the doctor. And gwani confesses, he, he sat down and he was following this colleague of his and he sat down with a patient one day and the patient listed off, it was an elderly woman, listed off many different ailments that she was having. And a couple of them really stood out as some pretty serious scary medical diagnoses. And gwani says in his mind, in his surgeon's mind, you know, seven minutes into the conversation, he's like, all right, well, I know what the most life-threatening thing is, and I've kind of figured out what should be done, so I, I'm guessing my colleague's going to wrap this up and give her a recommendation and move on. But no, the colleague spent another 35 minutes asking her questions like, tell me what you do throughout your week, How's your diet? How much food are you eating? And then, to Gawande's somewhat shock, the doctor asked, even though the woman hadn't mentioned anything about it, the doctor asked, can I take a look at your feet? And Gawande's like, what in the world? And he carefully removes her shoes and looks at her feet and inspects them with care that was beyond what he, as a surgeon, would have imagined. Now, let me pause. If there's any surgeons in the room, or any of our surgeons? I'm not poking fun at surgeons. He's poking fun at himself. I'm just reporting. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. He wraps the whole story up by acknowledging that his world as a surgeon is all about, as quickly as possible, diagnosing, coming up with the right treatment, and then getting into the OR because that's where the work matters. But he learned from his colleague that day that often something much different something much deeper and something much more important is going on, and if you just rush through the conversation, you're often going to miss it. And sure enough, for this woman, her feet were becoming somewhat badly misshapen, and even though she reported many challenging things in her life, statistically speaking, the most significant danger she had was losing her balance, tripping, falling, breaking a hip. That was the biggest risk. Even though she hadn't said it, the doctor took the time to learn a little more and identify something critical here's what i want to suggest is the reason this colleague of gwandies was so effective in his practice was because he had learned to be present he had learned that sometimes in life we need to stop and slow down we need to resist the temptation to rush through things and instead spend a little more time right here and sure enough What we're going to talk about today, I want to title this sermon, our second sermon in a series on character formation uh, Presence in a Distracted world. Has anybody ever here, uh, let's say in the last, I don't know, hour, struggled with distraction? Has anybody here in the last day found yourself distracted by maybe a glowing rectangle, by maybe a number of responsibilities, by maybe a worry that you have about the future or a burden from the past? Distraction. Okay, some of you didn't raise your hand, but I get it. You just don't feel right raising your hand like that. It's just, but we're all gonna, we live in a world filled with all sorts of distractions. Every single day, we wage war against the innumerable distractions that bombard us every minute of every day. And here's what I want to suggest. If you find yourself getting distracted sometime during the sermon and you miss everything else, here's the big idea that I want to put out right at the beginning. Being present is one of the best ways to honor others to honor the people in your life, and being present is critical for forming character. I want to start with this. You know, it might be a bit of an abnormal. Being present isn't usually listed as one of the classic character traits, but I think this is foundational to any other endeavor of character formation we're going to undertake because being present is what is required to form any and every other character trait in our lives. Like I said before, we're going to ask three questions every week, so here's the three questions for this week. What is presence? What do I mean when I talk about that? Why does presence matter, and how do I form presence? Now, I, I just I need to apologize. A few of you printed off the note sheets or have it on your phone, and I changed it. So last week, I said, what is, and how do I form, and then why does it matter? But I changed the order, so your note sheets are out of order, and I'm very sorry but I believe in you. You're going to make it through this. It's going to be great. Uh, okay, so what do I mean? Question number one, what is presence? I want to uh, read a story from the Gospel of Luke that I believe captures what I'm talking about, uh, and I'm going to set the context. The story comes from Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, if you want to turn there and read along. Um, But here's how it goes. Jesus is up in northern Israel, uh, and he's been ministering for a while. And at this point in his life, uh, and we're going to see how this comes into the story later, pretty much every moment of the day, he's got a crowd following him. I mean, in fact, sometimes he tries to get in a boat and get away from the crowd, but by the time he gets to the other side of the lake, the crowd's jogged around and met him there already. So Jesus always has a crowd. And he's in a town, and he gets approached by a man who has a very important role in that town, a man whose name is Jairus. And we're told that Jairus is a synagogue leader, which just means that this is an important person. He's probably known. He might have his own small entourage with him wherever he goes. And not only is Jesus approached by an important man in the town, but he's approached by Jairus with a pretty heavy request. Just picture it, big crowds. Jesus, who's got a following, who's an important figure, is approached by another well-known, important man in that city, and here's what happens. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked the text says that the crowds were so big and forceful that they were almost crushing him, and Jesus somewhat bafflingly asks, who touched me? Like, I can only imagine that the disciples are muttering to one another, like, has he gone off his rocker? I mean, this guy is ridiculous. There's a hundred people who are all simultaneously touching you and smashing you and almost crushing you. Jesus I mean, all respect and all, like, you're clearly a good teacher, but this is a dumb question, Jesus. I know in school my teachers told me there's no such thing as a dumb question, but Jesus, this is a dumb question. We don't know what's going on. The text is maybe a little more gentle, but I think that's the feel we get when we find out that. uh, When they all, the disciples, when they all denied it, Peter said a little more tactfully, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you, right? And then we can insert the subtext beneath that question. So, Jesus is on the way to the house of a very important man. And he's on the way to do a very important work. And while in the middle of something really important, he stops and asks what to the reader and to the disciples would seem like a pretty bizarre question. Think about the last time, I don't, I don't know what it is, maybe it's something in your home life, maybe it's something in your vocational life, maybe it's something, uh, you know, you've been engaged in the life of somebody you know, a, a relationship that really matters to you. Think about the last time you were in the middle of something really important. Think of the last time you were trying to do something, you were going somewhere, you were in the middle of something, and in your mind you thought, I need to eliminate all distractions. I need to close the door, I need to put the do not disturb sign on, I need to make sure that nobody... Think of the last time you were in the middle of something important. And that feeling that we get, right, because when we're in the middle of it, we get this sort of like, this focus and this urgency and this like, ooh, you know, this matters in my life. And yet, in that moment, Jesus decides to stop. And so here's the first observation I want to make as we try to define what it is to be present. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but while on the way to the important, we sometimes forget. Have you ever done this? We sometimes forget that we still actually live in the present. We know that that important thing is just over the horizon, but we forget that, in fact, we still live in the moment right here, right now? Or have you ever had the experience um, that goes something like this? Another way to say it. Sometimes what is ahead of us causes us to miss what is right in front of us. I think Jesus could have been at risk for that, but we find out that no. Even though all of us can probably identify a time when what's ahead of us, when what's important, when what we're sort of looking towards causes us to forget about the important things around us right now, even though we've experienced that, Jesus shows us, a different and better way. So Jesus asked the question, who touched me? His disciples are like, we can't answer that question, Jesus. Everybody is touching you. But Jesus presses on in order to show the disciples what's going on in his own mind, he says. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. I want to suggest that what Jesus did right here in this moment was he remained present. Even in the midst of distraction, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of being on his way to something important, Jesus remained present. And I see at least three ways that Jesus was present in this moment. First of all, he was physically present for this woman. This woman was only one among many people crowding around him and touching him, and yet he noticed that she in particular touched him, and the significance of that could be quickly lost on us if we don't remember the context in which Jesus was living. You may have heard of or understood this context before, so let me remind you, at that time and place, Jesus was a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi. And in the world of Judaism great significance there was huge importance so much of life rose and fall on what is clean and what is unclean in order to participate fully participate in Jewish life at that time and in that place you had to keep yourself pure clean uh, uh, free. You had to wash and cleanse yourself of any impurities, and being unclean was considered a very bad, a very negative, even a very dangerous thing. I was going to read to you Leviticus 15, 25 through 27, but I decided I'm not going to actually read the whole thing. It's just the details, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be squirmy about these things, but if you want to go read these chapters in Leviticus, you can, but let me just tell you what it explains. It explains how All women, once a month, become unclean when they're bleeding. And that uncleanliness made them unclean. It made anything they touch unclean. It made anybody who touched anything they had touched unclean. It created this sort of, like, sphere of uncleanliness around them. And Leviticus goes into quite a bit of detail about how all that works. But this woman hadn't been bleeding for just a short period every month. It doesn't tell us the nature of it, but it says she has been bleeding, presumably nonstop, for 12 years. She has been considered unclean for the past 12 years of her life. One of the other versions of uncleanliness that we see in the Gospels often is lepers, people who have a skin disease which might have also uh, caused some bleeding. And we know that uh, from some other historical sources, sometimes lepers actually had to walk around the city proclaiming as they went, unclean, unclean, lest somebody accidentally brush up against them. And become unclean themselves. To be unclean wasn't just some strange ritual. It wasn't just some obscure. To be unclean made you an outcast. It probably impacted this woman's ability to have a job and make a living. It probably impacted this woman's ability to have any meaningful relationship. It may have been 12 years since anyone had allowed themselves to physically touch her without her being chastised. And we get that sense because it says the woman trembling came forward. Which brings us to the next way. So Jesus was first physically present. A significant thing for this woman in a time when she would have been physically avoided by everyone. But the second thing Jesus does after being physically present is he was relationally present. This woman is now trembling. I've been found out. And I know what happens when I get found out. I get in trouble. I get criticized. I get further ostracized. And here's what Jesus says. In the presence, or rather, here's what happens next. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. This is the crux of the whole story. She says, I've been healed. Something happened. Yes, I touched Jesus, and, and maybe she even inherently is apologizing, I'm sorry I did it because I know maybe I shouldn't have, but, but I got healed. And now everybody swivels to Jesus. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? He's a Jewish rabbi. He's probably got the book of Leviticus memorized. I know, that is kind of funny. Like, really, Jesus? I mean, he might have. I don't know. I mean, they, they did a lot of memorization back in the day. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She physically touched him. We're safe to assume that other people who had physically touched her before, especially maybe accidentally, or if she had touched somebody, she might have been chastised for that in the past. He turns to her, and he takes the attention off himself, and instead he gives her a great compliment. He says first, daughter, don't miss that. He addresses her with a term of endearment, with a term of relationship, with a term of care. And then he says, your faith, something good and intrinsically valuable in you, something that I want to celebrate and and honor in you, your faith has healed you. And then these final words, go in peace. It's almost like Jesus recognizes that for this woman, yes, her physical ailment was a significant thing. But it's quite possible that even more than physical healing, the even bigger weight she'd love to let go of, the even bigger need in her heart was maybe to just finally be free of all of the painful relationships she had to be reminded of every day as she was considered unclean. And Jesus speaks over her go in. Peace. I mean, if there's one thing this woman wanted more than her physical healing, it might well have been peace. And that's what Jesus speaks to her. So Jesus was physically present with this woman in a, in a way that was powerful. He was relationally present with her, calling her daughter, honoring her faith. And the third thing that just sort of stood out to me is that Jesus was also present with Himself, He has this somewhat strange phrase that we can only kind of guess at what he really means, but he says, power has gone out from me. I mean, obviously he's referring to the fact that when the woman touched him, she was healed. I I don't know what that feels like or is like to have somebody touch the hem of my robe and be instantly healed and to notice that power, like I don't know what that is. But here's what I do know. I can go through big chunks of time completely ignoring what's going on inside my heart, completely ignoring things like whether or not I need to eat food to to keep energy and stop from getting crabby, whether or not, like, it's easy for me to get distracted by things and ignore my own self. Jesus here demonstrates what we might refer to as being self-aware. Again, he was in a crowd. He was on the way to something important. I mean, if that were me, I might have been like, what was that? That nah, doesn't matter. I'm on my way to something important. Let's just ignore it. But Jesus stayed present with what was going on in his life as well. So, here's my answer to the first question. What is presence? What do I mean when we say we want to be people who intentionally form the character trait of being present? Pushing aside distraction, staying in the present moment. Here's my attempt to define presence. Presence Is the physical, relational, and spiritual engagement, I could say connection with, intention, uh, uh, focus on your immediate circumstances. So often, our hearts and our minds are focused on something far away, whether at a different time or a different place. But when we're present, we take all of who we are, our physical selves, our relational selves, our spiritual, mental, social, and we keep it right here on what's going on in front of us. Let's just think for a second. When have you been fully present? When's a time in your life that you can recall that you're like, oh my gosh, I was just right there. I was just, my whole heart, my whole mind was completely in that moment. I've been watching the Netflix documentary called uh, The Last Dance about Michael Jordan's 97-98 championship basketball season. It's great if you guys like basketball. Actually, if you don't like basketball, it's still great. Um, it it's, tells the story well. But a really interesting thing was said in one of the final episodes. I don't remember what sports commentator or author, but somebody said, you know, the thing that maybe made Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player, sure, he had that fadeaway jumper. Sure, he just had a ridiculous work ethic. But this commentator recorded in the video said, I think what truly made him stand above the rest was he was always a hundred percent present in whatever he was doing. In every practice, he was fully present. He was never distracted. In every game, he was fully present. He wasn't worrying about the shot he just missed. He wasn't worried about whether he was going to make the next shot. He was just fully present. And I heard that, and it struck me that even a, a sports writer would notice The significance of this brings us to our second question Why does presence matter? I want to make two suggestions about why presence matters. Here's the first one God only works in the presence. In the present, we talked about this last week. Here's the fact Did God work in the past? Has He worked in the past? Yes, but that's gone, it doesn't exist anymore. And as a matter of fact, you're not in the past anymore. So you can't go and receive from God what he did in the past. And also, the future. I'm sorry to tell you, it doesn't exist yet. Okay, sure, can we talk about whether God knows the future and all that stuff? Sure, 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 sure. But you don't live there. I happen to know. You never have. You never will. You never possibly could. The only place you can ever, 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 ever live is in this present moment. All that life is is a series of present moment, after present moment, after present moment. And our option is either to fully embrace and live in that moment or to discard it, miss it, and miss whatever opportunity may have come along. Author Dallas Willard says it this way, God has yet to bless anyone except where they are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our lives. I mean, think about it this way. If I were to ask you, just generally speaking, about one of your most, like, precious and cherished memories in your life like if you're just to to call to mind something that was just like oh this is one of the greatest I just this memory was so beautiful it was so powerful it was just amazing let me tell you what not a single one of you would say not a single one of you would go oh well you know I was in this beautiful location I was on a mountaintop or I was on a beach and there was a sunset I was in this beautiful location location, and I was with someone I loved you know best friend life partner I was beautiful location with someone I loved and oh I was just worrying about all the email I would have to get back to the following week oh the best moment in my life nobody ever Nobody ever has and nobody ever will, which brings us to the second thing. God only works in the present because it 's the only place we can receive His work and second distraction ruins the present it ruins my and your ability to see what 's actually going on to embrace what God actually wants to do and it just ruins the quality of the present. nobody likes distraction I don 't know I, maybe like maybe some of you do I don 't know but I, I just I have a hard time thinking that any of our preferences is to live constantly distracted lives. If that's true, if God only works in the present and our character formation task is to stay present in the present, and if distraction, or insert for distraction all the other things that can kind of pull our, you know, focus apart, um, if distraction ruins the present, then that, as always, brings us to the question of what's your move? And here's where I kind of changed the order of the questions. I realize that your move and our third question, "How do I form present presence?" Uh, those are actually the same question. Those two things actually kind of just go together. So I'm going to put them together today. And I want to start with what might be just really practical, maybe maybe even offensively simple suggestions. If we want to be people who form our character uh, intentionally to become more present. Here's the first thing we need to do, and I'm sorry if it's insulting how simple this is, but it just strikes me as important. The first thing we need to do is reduce distractions. Now, you might say, Carl, that's fine for you to say, but you don't have four kids like I have. (laughs) Or I might say to you, that's nice for you to say, but you don't have four kids like I have, Carl. My life is so filled with distractions. Okay, okay, I get it. I can sympathize with the distraction-filled lives that you live. So let me break it down a little more. Let's come up with a little process. First of all, identify. Right now in your head, where you most significantly experience distraction. Take a second, think about it. What's the point in my day when I constantly notice, oh, I just get so distracted here. I just feel so frazzled. I just get so... What's that moment? Is it you're trying to put the kids to bed, and you want to make that sweet moment where you read them a book, and they snuggle, and they put your head on your shoulder, and it's really great. But you find yourself just being like, uh, "I gotta go do the dishes and fold the laundry and sweep the floor." And you know, is it is it you know after work, and you go out to dinner with your friends, and you want to connect, and you want to relax, and you want to have meaningful relational time? But you just feel like every time you do that. You're back in the office thinking about, oh, I I shouldn't have said that in the email that I wrote. Oh, that's going to come back to bite me in the morning. Where is it in your life that you most significantly experience distraction? If you can't answer that, then maybe this is the task for the next week. You know, if you're a journaler, if you have like a day planner or something, this would be a really quick, simple, end-of-everyday activity. Where was I distracted today? And just take a note for a few days, maybe a couple weeks in a row, so that we can say, you know what, if distraction is a problem, let's at least be able to say, this is where I experience it. Okay, but maybe you've got it. So you've got that in mind. Does anybody, if you, does anybody have a place in mind? Does anybody, like, okay, good. I got like seven nods. Seven of us, we're, we got this. Um, so you've identified this place. Here's my next suggestion. Set and intention. Here's what I mean by intention. It's kind of similar to a goal, but different. And I know goal setting, some people like love goal setting and some people roll their eyes and they're like, I've had enough goal setting in my life. But with goal setting, usually we talk a little more long term, right? Like over the next year, I want to, but we set the, we set goals in New Year's. Intention is a little more granular. It usually comes to a smaller time and place. So let's say you've identified where you want where you suffer from distraction. And it's like, you know what, every time when I go out with my friends, I'm always distracted, and I'm just like plagued by work emails. Next time you do it, before you go into that moment, you set the intention. You just say, okay, I intend to stay present with my friends at this time. I'm going to stay present with my kid when I'm reading a book. I'm going to stay present with my spouse we're sharing a meal identify where you suffer from distraction set an intention it's not like this isn't like some sort of crazy this is just being intentional about what we do with our time and then here's the third and critical thing because if it's true that God is in fact always present with us that means God wants to be present with you in this practice so a simple prayer God help me remain present fill in the blank right here right now, at this meal, during this experience, with this person, God, help me remain present. It could even become a sort of breath prayer throughout that time. You know, you're like, maybe for the next hour, I just want to be present right here, and you just kind of, God, help me remain present. God, help me remain present. I want to suggest a couple other really simple things that I personally have done that I've found meaningful that I'm sure you've heard of before and and I'm just going to go quick through them. But, you know, you you know this, but eye contact. When you're looking somebody in the eye, you're going to be more focused, right? Pause and listen. Sometimes in conversation we get distracted because we're always jumping to say what we want to say before we really listen to what the other person is trying to say. So just do that practice that you know. I'm just going to pause. The simple practice of silence and stillness. I wrote in the notes, just try this. Once a day, set a one-minute timer. Start with one minute and say, I'm just going to sit here for one minute in complete silence because I know my heart just gets pulled so fast, and maybe you could even grow that. Heck, maybe you could get to the point where every week or every couple of weeks you just sit for five minutes of stillness, ten minutes of stillness, and you learn what it's like to do nothing except be present. And the reason that matters is not just because we need to push aside distraction, but like we said, because God is in the present. And every time we let ourselves get distracted, we're ignoring the God who is present and with us. Which brings us to the last one, and I want to just kind of guide us through a little activity even right now, pray. And I'll say again, two ways to pray. First of all, uh, breath prayer. I just think breath prayer is a powerful way to form this habit, this character trait Our breath reminds us that we are dependent on God without the oxygen in our lungs, which we can do nothing about providing for ourselves. It's just there. I didn't put it there. I'll tell you what, you didn't put it there. God has put it there for us every minute. Our breath is a powerful way to remember the God who is with us. So you could pray a breath prayer like, God, help me to know that you are present. God, help me to know that you are present. But here's the last prayer I want to introduce that we're actually going to talk about a few times. You know, there's a a bunch of different practices, and my hope is not that anybody will do every single one of these things, but maybe that everybody would find a single one of these things that would be the right meaningful thing for you to grow in these ways. Um, There's another prayer, we've talked about it before, it's called the prayer of examine. If it's true that God always only shows up in your life in the present moment, then one of the things we need to do is we need to start increasing our ability to notice where God showed up and was at work. Yes, God's always present, God's always at work, but in our experience we only see it at the times and the places that we see it. So here's a simple way to do the prayer of examine. I often do this when I lay down in bed at the end of the day right before I fall asleep. I like doing this sort of as I'm drifting off to sleep. It's simple. You you simply think back through your day. Start in the morning, and just sort of remember, what did I do for breakfast? How did, how did school drop-off go? What, what did I do when I got to work? What projects did I work on? How did this meeting go? Where did I go for lunch? What did I do in the afternoon? What, you know, when I got home, what was it like when I got home? What did I do for the evening? What did I do at the end of the day? Just spend, you know, it can be two, three minutes. You don't have to, like, go deep. Just think back through your day. And for the sake of forming the ability to be present, here's two questions you could ask yourself as I think through my day, where was I distracted? Was I distracted? Where was it? If you do this regularly, you might start to notice, oh my gosh, I'm always distracted right here. And then you might ask yourself, where did I notice God's presence? And if you do this regularly, you might start to say to yourself, oh my gosh, this is something to pay attention to. Maybe I can learn by noticing where I'm distracted. Maybe I can learn by noticing where I always see God's presence I'd invite you even right now would you pray with me and as we pray take a minute and just think back over your morning today when did you wake up what was on your heart and your mind as you had breakfast as you got ready to come to church this morning even as we've been in this room. Thinking back through your morning, answer in your mind to this question, where was I distracted? Acknowledging that point, that that moment, now ask yourself, where so far today have I encountered God's presence? And simply notice, and God, having considered our lives, we put them before you and ask that you would help us to become people who spend more of our time being fully present. Amen. Because here's what we know. God is always present. The critical question becomes, are you Would you join with our worship team now in singing to our God who is present, who is not present and passive, who is not present and disconnected, but rather is present and ready to work powerfully in our lives.